If you've never heard the name Florence Chadwick before, she was a swimmer in the uh, middle of the last century in the 1950s, and uh, she particularly set out in 1952 to swim from Catalina Island all the way to the coast of California. So in 1952, she sets out, she gets up in the morning, and the weather is foggy. And she swims and swims and swims for 15 hours, and then she gives up. And, and the rescuers from the boats that were with her come in, pull her out of the water, and they drive to the land. And, and she's disappointed because she quit within a half mile of the, the coast of California. She was a half mile away from her goal. But the problem was she couldn't see it. The fog was too thick. She couldn't see the land that was ahead of her. And her quote at the end, she said, I don't want to make excuses for myself. I asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And sure enough, two months later, it's exactly, exactly what she did. She accomplished the swim from Catalina Island to the, the coast of California. Uh, on a clear, bright day, she could see the shoreline. And of course, that gave her the encouragement that she needed. See, there are times where we need to see the shore, don't we? Where we need to see what's coming up ahead. We need to see the end. While the weather might be a bit foggy right now for us, as we're in the midst of just some confusion of sickness and disease, natural disasters, other things that are happening, we need to see the shore. And today, we want to investigate the promise, a 3,000-year-old promise to an Iraqi refugee and his wife. That might seem obscure to us, right? It might seem kind of off the radar to us. Certainly there's better hopes for us to put our hope in this morning than these words spoken centuries ago to this man, this obscure man in the middle of the Middle East. Maybe it would be better for us to put our time and our efforts into science and to say science will, will surely get, get us through this time. Science will surely deliver us. It'll provide the vaccination. It'll provide all of the things that we need. Or maybe we should put our hope in our wealth, in the economy. We should say, if I, I have all of the resources, I need to overcome my situation. But I, I sincerely doubt that any such promises will hold out the hope that this promise made to Abraham will hold out for us this morning. I hope that as we blow off the promises, uh, kind of to blow the dust off these promises made to Abraham, that we might see the shoreline. And we might be able to keep on swimming. So here's our big idea and our structure. First big idea is that we participate in the promises made to our father Abraham by faith. We're going to see this, and, and really this, this passage really lays out like a contract. So in verse 1 through 8, what Brian just read, this is God's commitment to Abraham. This is what God is saying, I'm going to accomplish for Abraham. In verses 9 through 14, it's what God requires of Abraham. And so God defines Abraham's obedience. And then in verses 15 through 21, uh, God's going to give another thing about committing to blessing through Sarah. And then finally, in verses 22 through 27, we're going to see Abraham's Obedience, And so if you didn't catch it, the text actually breaks itself up in these ways. It says that, as for me, in verse 4, that's God speaking about how he's going to bless Abraham. In verse 9, it's as for you. And then in verse 15, it's as for Sarah. And here's the bigger picture for today. First, we'll look to see what God promises in Genesis 17. And then we'll look at the scope of his promise. And finally, we'll, we'll pull out some implications for us here and now today. This passage has been hard to prepare for. 
the implications of this passage reach throughout the entirety of the scriptures. We'll find uh, implications for this passage well into the New Testament, even unto the book of Revelation. And what we want to do is just kind of pull that thread and just tug it all the way through the, the Bible this morning and find its implications throughout the scriptures. So here we are. We participate in the promises made to our father Abraham by faith. The first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 8, God commits to Abraham. Look with me at 17 verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99, uh, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for, generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, to your offspring, to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God." See, Abram starts off and and he hears God speaking to him in verses 1 and 2. God appears to Abraham and and introduces his covenant. God introduces himself. He says, I am God Almighty. It's the word El Shaddai, right? If you're a 90s CCM fan, you remember El Shaddai, right? It means God Almighty, or God who is sufficient. And so God is showing up with Abram, who's wondering about his, his progeny, who's wondering about this promise, and he's saying, am I ever going to have kids? And God is showing up saying, I'm Almighty. And he begins then, uh, in verse 1, he says, walk before me and be blameless. And in essence, God is saying, this is how you're going to be obedient to me. I'm going to lay out the nature of your obedience. And he goes on, and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so what happens in verse 3 is Abram falls on his face. Now, this isn't Abram's just a klutz, right? He's intentionally bowing down in worship. And this is the first time that we've really seen Abram do this. Why is this the first time that we do this? It highlights that Abram was just longing for the definition of this covenant from God. He's just longing to say, God, what must I do? What are you going to do? We've cut the covenant back in chapter 15, but we've never given the parameters of what exactly is going to happen. And so that's what God does in verses 4 through 8. God clarifies and extends his promises to Abram. Now, as we've been reading in Genesis, from Genesis 12 all the way up to Genesis 17, here where we are today, we've just seen little additions and amendments to God's promises. And so when God first initiates his promise in Genesis 12, he promises four things, right? He promises that Abram's going to have a people. He's going to become a great nation, that he's going to have this uh, progeny who's going to be the start of this massive nation of people. He promises him a place in Genesis 12, verse 7. He said, hey, all the land that you see, north, south, east, east, and west, that's going to be yours. 
He promises him protection. In in chapter 12, verse 3, he says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And finally, he promises him this, this great program for the nations. He says, hey, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we've seen little additions to this throughout uh, our time in Genesis. Now he's kind of re-articulating a number of these and even extending or clarifying these things. In verse 6, he says first that God promises to make him exceedingly fruitful. Now God's already promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth or as the stars in the sky in Genesis 15. And now he's saying, you will be exceedingly fruitful. And secondly, uh, he will become nations and kings will come from him. That's why his name moves from Abram to Abraham. Abram is the uh, exalted father. That's what it means. Now think about how that stung every time someone would use his name and he has no children. Exalted father. But now God is moving him to say, father of a multitude, father of nations. And God's renamed him according to this promise. The third thing we see is that this covenant is established with his kids as an everlasting covenant. Look at verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. This isn't just for you, Abraham. This is for generations to come from you. That is, the promise is passed on to his chosen descendant, Isaac, and it's never to be revoked. Even now, it still exists that there is a true Israel, we believe, that God still has a plan as in accordance with Romans chapter 11. Fourth thing we see is that God intends to give Abraham the the land of Canaan in verse 8. Of course, we've already known this, uh, but he intends to give him this land. Finally, we see that God will be the God of Abraham's descendants. Look at verse 8, the second half of verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Now, hear this phrase, and I will be their God. If you kind of just search that phrase throughout the scriptures, you'll see uh, that God intentionally kind of returns back to this phrase that he wants to be the God of his people. As he sends the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, he's constantly saying to them, I will be their God. Look up Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 sometime, and it culminates to this idea, hey, I'm no longer going to tell them, obey me, because they're all going to know me, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the promise and the intention of God that he desires to make for himself a kingdom, a people. We see this in the New Testament as the church is kind of brought out. They become God's people. We see it all the way through the book of Revelation, which we'll get to in a few minutes. See, as we kind of look at this passage, one thing that we can pull out that's just interesting for us to note that Abraham is going to have to be resurrected to see this fulfilled. If we go back to Genesis 15 and we lay out what what exactly happened in Genesis 15, remember uh, Abraham falls asleep and God starts speaking to him about all the things that are going to happen. He's saying, your your descendants are going to be taken away from this generation until the fourth generation, at which point I'm going to bring them back and give them this land. And what happens then is is God is saying to Abram, you're not going to see possession of this land in your lifetime. You're going to have to wait until your resurrection to see that 
come to fruition. See, Abram will not see these things transpire during his lifetime. There's partial fulfillments of, his prophet, uh, of this prophecy or of this promise to him. Isaac is born. He does purchase a small portion of land to, to bury his wife, but there's no, by no means has he taken uh, in the fullness of what God has promised him here. Now, the promise uh, that Abraham anticipates will be taking place after his resurrection from the dead. second thing we see is that God defines what Abram's obedience looks like in verses 9 through 14. Look, look with me at verse 9. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall be, keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Excuse me. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is a fun little topic, isn't it? Right? Circumcision, cut off, all those things. How do we understand this? And, and God kind of lays this out in a very manageable way. In verses 9 and 10, he, he, he first gives that this is the only requirement that he has for Abram, right? That they be circumcised. And he, in verse 11, he describes exactly what he is, the removal of flesh from the male anatomy. And in verses 12 through 14, he describes who it's for, for every male in the household. Not just those that are physically born from Abram, but anybody bought with his money is to be circumcised. You might say, why? What is the point of this? Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11, God explains the purpose of circumcision in verse 11. He says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. See, this act of circumcision is a sign. Well, we've seen this word before in the book of Genesis, haven't we? What's it mean for circumcision to be a sign for us? We've seen that it, it was uh, given uh, when, when God made the sun and the moon. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, he said it's a sign of seasons, uh, a, a way to indicate seasons and changes. Cain was marked with a sign in Genesis chapter 4, right, that someone would visibly see. Noah was given a sign in the rainbow uh, as God made a covenant with the earth that he would no longer flood it. God gives signs, and now he gives this sign to Abraham. You might say, why? It brings a second thing to our mind, right? The first, that, that Abraham had to be resurrected. But secondly, Genesis 16 follows right after Genesis 17. I know that's deep and profound. But Genesis 16 is the story of, God's, of Abram and Sarah's faithlessness to the promises of God. As Abram sleeps with his, his wife's servant, Hagar, and tries to have a child through her, Genesis 17 follows on the heels of that, saying, I'm going to give you 
a progeny. I'm going to make you a great nation, and that's why I'm asking you to be circumcised. It's a reminder that, that my faithfulness to you is going to come through you. It's going to be uh, you, your, my faithfulness to you as you bear children is, is going to be of my work, not of yours, if that makes any sense. It's, it's not without significance that that part of the body is the part affected by God's promise, that Abram is reminded of God's faithfulness to give him children. Now, as we continue, as we press on in verses 15 through 21, we've seen God commits to Abram in, in verses 1 through 8. God defines Abraham's obedience in verses 9 through 14. And now God commits to blessing Abraham through Sarah. Look at verses 15 through 21. God said to Abram, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. By the way, both names mean princess. We really don't see much differentiation in the name, but we can see the intention of God as Sarah means princess. It's, she's literally of a royal line. She's going to give birth to kings, as was promised. Anyway, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall, have, or he shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The things we find out here is that God clarifies Sarah's role. Abraham's son is to come through Sarah, not through Hagar. And Abraham, even though Abraham kind of pleads for Ishmael in verses 17 through 18, he falls on his face and he pleads, hey, is, is my wife supposed to have a child when she's 90 years old? Am I supposed to raise a kid when I'm 100? I mean, I'm 40 and I feel like I'm overwhelmed, Right? How is this going to work? Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Sarah's biological clock is no longer even ticking, right? And he says in verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, doesn't this work? Isn't this just a means by which you could bless us through Ishmael? God says, No. No, through Sarah. I'm going to bring about the promise. And so we find out now that Sarah is going to be the mother of this child, that she will have this child within the next year, and Abram is, is left to trust God yet again. What happens in verses 19 through 21 is that God clarifies the future of Isaac and Ishmael. First we see that Isaac is going to be born, verse 19. Isaac, his name means laughter. Right? It reminds us that, that Abram fell on his face and laughed before God. We're going to see next week that, that Sarah also will laugh when, when she hears about childbirth in chapter 18. And so Isaac's going to be born. Ishmael will be great, but not a covenant participant, as we see in verses 20 and 21. And Isaac's going to be born within the year in verse 21. 
It's interesting to note here, right, that, that all of those who take on the sign of circumcision aren't necessarily a part of the covenant. And we see that most, uh, most definably with Ishmael. Ishmael's not the one who's going to receive the covenant promises, but yet he still takes on the sign of circumcision. It's a reminder to us this morning that, that we, um, we might see characters in the Old Testament who are in the so-called Israel movement, but not necessarily a part of God's covenant. Just a theological note on the side of all of this, that we have some people who will press and say, um, baptism is the new circumcision. What circumcision was in the Old Testament to include people into the plan and purpose of God, that's what baptism is. But what baptism should be doing, according to 1 Peter 3, it's the pleading of, of the conscience before God for a clear, clear conscience, Right? It's the, the statement before God of, I recognize God's goodness and his mercy, and I'm publicly affirming that, it's, as we see it in the New Testament. This is different than the issue of baptism in, in many different ways. I'm kind of off on a rabbit trail, so I've got to bring myself back. But regardless, we see that all of those circumcised don't necessarily participate in the covenant. And what happens in verses 22 through 27 is that Abraham obeys God. Look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or brought, bought with his money, every male among them uh, of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, was, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with the money uh, from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The Abraham gives us two different uh, qualities of obedience that we want to take note of this morning. First of all, it's immediate. The same day that Abraham hears the promise from God, he circumcises his whole household. And secondly, it's complete. He doesn't just circumcise part of his household or circumcise himself and say, everybody else figure it out. He sees to it through its completion. And so we recognize that Abraham has heard the promise of God, that he has responded to the promise of God with full and absolute obedience. Now, if we're not careful about this passage, it's going to read like a cell phone contract, Right? I mean, here's what you do, here's what we're responsible for, here's what you're responsible for, and, and that's how this is all going to work. Okay, so uh, Abraham, here's my blessing to you, and, and Abraham, here's your responsibilities, and this is how Sarah fits into the whole thing, and that's how this is all going to work. We might just kind of look at this passage, just kind of this bare-bones detailing of exactly how God is going to relate with his people. But we want to just stop, and we want to consider one simple question. Have these things taken place that have been promised to Abraham? Have they happened yet? Let's take a quick survey of the promises made to Abram and just see if by the end of the book of Genesis, even if they're fulfilled, God promises Abraham a place, specifically the land of Canaan, that he would rule over this land, that that land would be his. Remember in Genesis 12, he says, this land of your sojournings, I'm going to, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. Genesis 15, he says, look north, look south, look east, look west, wander the land. I'm going to give this land to you. Does that happen by the end of the book of Genesis? No. 
not even close. By the time Abraham dies, they are still sojourning. They're still wandering. They're still living in tents by the time Abraham is put into his grave. What about a people? When Abraham dies, is he the father of a multitude? Well, no, he has two kids. He has Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael and Isaac are going to have sons, and, and eventually. But by the end of the book of Genesis, even, it's 70 people in Exodus 1 that, that go from, um, from Canaan down to Egypt. 70 men, 70 descendants of Abraham. Not quite the multitude. Is there protection? Well, we've seen protection from God. Uh, remember, we... we the promise was in Genesis 12, 3, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Right? There's the issue with Melchizedek, and surely we could say Melchizedek was blessed by Abraham. Lot is blessed because of his proximity to Abraham. We'll see that a little bit next week. And so, yeah, we could say that God is protecting and blessing Abraham. What about this program for the nations? Could we say that all the peoples of the earth are being blessed through Abram? Well, no, I don't, I don't think we could. Equally, I don't think we could say that the promises made to Abram have been fulfilled in any tangible way for us today. I don't think we could materially say that, that God has given Abraham and his descendants this massive people. They're spread out, strewn about the earth. Their place is Israel, but they don't even have full control over their holy sites in Israel. We could say that God protected them, I guess. But overwhelmingly, it seems like these promises haven't taken place, have they? We would look at these promises from Genesis 17, and we would say, we're still waiting on, those, on that fulfillment. It leaves us with two options. Either God is a liar. He doesn't really fulfill the things he's promised. He doesn't really give us exactly what Abraham was expecting to receive. Or the promises made to Abraham are yet to come. Second thing we want to point out this morning is that all these promises are fulfilled in Christ. And so we have these promises unfulfilled as they were in their practical realities, but there's a spiritual reality that has been fulfilled in Christ and will be even more fulfilled as we look forward into the future. See, Galatians 3 says this, Now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Christ, that these promises made to Abram should be fulfilled Christologically, should be fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the key to unlock all of these promises. Even now, as we live in this kind of church age, we recognize that God is creating for himself a people, the church. That's what we are. We are a people bound together by our common confession of Jesus Christ. As we look at Romans chapter 4, we, we see that Abraham has become our father through faith. And so God has kind of given a partial fulfillment of this promise as, as we are those who are through faith, one nation, God's people, the church. God is going to give us a place, and we'll discuss this in just a second, but God 
promises, his protection. Uh, those who bless you, he'll bless. Those who curse us, he'll curse. Maybe not necessarily in this life, but at some point. God has a program for the nations through Jesus. And so it's, it's kind of already, but it's not yet, if that makes any sense. The promises of God made to Abram here find a partial fulfillment in the work of Jesus as we're raised to new life. We're promised something that's coming. And this morning, I want to do just due diligence to go kind of fast forward with me and see what God has promised. So I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, and I want to just highlight a few different passages. Uh, you can try and keep your finger in Genesis, or, you know, we're talking about the first book and the very last book here this morning. Revelation. I want to start with Revelation chapter 5. This is the scene in the uh, throne room of God. And John is broken because there's no one holy or righteous enough to open up the seals of God's judgment. What happens is in verse 9, we see this recounting of of these 24 elders and these angels in God's presence. And they say this, they say, Worthy are you, speaking to Jesus, to take up the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Does God have a program for the nations? Yes, he does right here. A people from every tribe and tongue and nations. Does God have a people? Yes, look what he says there at the end of verse 9, uh, or excuse me, at the middle of verse 10, uh, that you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. God has created a people here in this heavenly realm. What do we do about a place? Flip with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The only one who, conquer, or the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Does God have a place in mind for his people? Yeah, 
There's this vision of this new Jerusalem descending from heaven and setting itself on the earth and God reigning with his people forever, for all eternity. What about a protection? If we were to back up into Revelation chapter 20, we see uh, that Satan himself is thrown into the, the flaming pit for a thousand years, and then eventually he's thrown into the pit of fire in Revelation 21, I believe. And so there's protection from our enemies. There's a program for the nations. There's a people, the kingdom of God, that we are a kingdom of priests. There is a, a place, a new Jerusalem that is set out for us, that these are the fulfillments of the promise made to Abraham in all of their finality. See, the place I struggle with is that we might just look at this and say, oh, God promised Abraham this, and what we got was we got this kind of spiritual kingdom. And I look at Revelation and I say, no, God's going to give us a participation in a real kingdom. If we turn back with me to Revelation chapter 20. Verse 4. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the end of the thousand years were ended. Uh, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death is, has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. See, throughout this passage, you'll see just repeated, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, that there's this period where we will reign with Christ, that we will... Uh, participate, that, that these promises to Abram will also be re receiving their full fulfillment. See, the long and short of this is that you and I are participants in this promise. God tells us we're participants in this promise. He says that we're sons of Abraham in, in Romans 4. He says, and not only for the adherent of the law, but also for the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. See, Abraham is our father through faith. Even though none of us here are probably descended of, of a Jewish heritage, maybe you are, I don't know. We become participants in the promises made to Abraham, not through our lineage, but through our faith. So that we look at these things that are promised to Abraham and you say, we're participants in this. We have a claim in this. We're inheritors of the promise. We are part of the people of God, the nation. We are those who will dwell with God. We will say, he is our God. We are his people. We might stop and just kind of consider the ramifications of this so that we might keep swimming, as it were, right? We see the shoreline in the book of Revelation. We see the end of what God has for us, that someday we will be with God as his people in his presence. See, the ramifications of this are, are significant. Remember when we were in, in Genesis 13 and 14, Abraham like, finds out that Lot has been captured. And he 
picks up all of his stuff and all of his servants, and he goes and he hunts down this guy with this awesome name, Cheddar Laomer or whatever it is. It's like, it's like Abram kind of exists in this world, but because he has the promise of God, he can kind of move in and out of the world and its dynamics as he sees fit. So you and I, as we receive the promise of God, we have the same implications, don't we? We don't have to be tied to all of the ins and outs of this world. We have a hope that extends beyond our life, that when our heart stops beating, we have the hope of Jesus Christ, the eternality that God has promised to us. We have a hope that is full and rich. We don't have to be tied to our insignificant things that happen in our lives. There's a way in which we can move in and out of, of this world, so to speak. I don't know if that makes any sense or brings any clarity, but this morning as we hear the promises of God, we recognize these aren't just promises made to Abram. These are promises made to us as well. I want to pray this morning that God makes us a people with our eyes set on his kingdom. This is what Paul tells us to do in, in Colossians chapter 1. He says, uh, you know, set your eyes on things above or your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. That's what we want to be. We want to be a people who are so heavenly minded we become earthly good. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your kindness, this recognition and this remembrance that you have given us your promise in Christ. Lord, remind us of your grace your mercy. Remind us of the inheritance that we have, that we are heirs, that we are your heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Lord, we thank you for this, the promise of our eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.